Welcome to Sansom Speaks, an educational speaker series presented by Sansom Clinics Women's Council. My name is Matt Bauman. I serve as the Vice President of Oncology for Sansom Clinic. And today we're going to be focusing on advancements in breast cancer treatment. As many of our listeners know, breast cancer impacts the lives of one in eight women in the U.S. And the two physicians that you're going to hear from today uh, work within Ridley Tree Cancer Center in Santa Barbara, California, where one in four of our cancer patients have a breast cancer diagnosis. Uh, we know that the impact of breast cancer on our community highlights the importance of conversations like today. We want this to be informative, but also encouraging. We believe that knowledge is power and that finding the right team and experts to partner with on your cancer journey are key to your success. I'm gonna introduce you to two of those experts, but before I do, I just wanna set a quick baseline by introducing you to three of the primary physician roles involved in cancer treatment. There are many other physicians involved in cancer care, but the primary three physician roles in cancer treatment are our medical oncologists, our surgical oncologists, and our radiation oncologists. Our medical oncologists are experts in treating cancer through the use of medication, uh, the most common of which is chemotherapy, but there's also hormone therapy and immunotherapy. Our surgical oncologists are experts in removing tumors through surgical intervention. And our radiation oncologists are experts in treating cancer through precise radiation therapy. Today, we're joined by medical oncologist, Dr. Chad Gunther, and radiation oncologist, Dr. Shane Cotter, as we delve into the latest advancements in breast cancer treatment within their respective fields of oncology. Dr. Gunther recently joined our team from University of Wisconsin Hospitals and Clinic, where he completed his hematology oncology fellowship. Prior to that, he completed his residency in internal medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and received his medical degree from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Gunther. Dr. Shane Cotter has been a practicing radiation oncologist with Ridley Tree Cancer Center since 2012. He also serves as our director of radiation oncology research. He earned his PhD in molecular and cellular biology, as well as his medical degree from Washington University in St. Louis. He completed an internship at our local Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital and a radiation oncology residency at Harvard Medical School, where he also served as the chief resident. Dr. Cotter has also served on the faculty at Harvard, uh, Harvard Medical School and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He was an instructor in radiation oncology at Brigham and Women's Hospital until he joined the Cancer Center again in 2012. Welcome, Dr. Cotter. So let's get started. Maybe first to you, uh, Dr. Gunther, why did you choose to pursue medical oncology? I really like medical oncology. I, I, like, I like science. I like the science behind it. I like how much the field is moving, uh, particularly nowadays. But what I like about medical oncology in particular is that you get to form these long-term relationships with people. Um, you see people for a lot longer than, than the other types of oncologists, and you really get to know people and know their wishes and know what they want to do. And you, you really get to earn someone's trust and 
having that trust is something that's that's very fulfilling mm-hmm. and, and makes me feel very special and very honored. Um, so getting to know my patients and, and spending that time with them is really important to me. Appreciate that. And, and same question to you, Dr. Cotter. Why did you choose the field of radiation oncology? Uh, Dr. Gunther, I thought that was really special and, and well said. Um, I think I'm a lot of the same reasons. So I think the biggest question for me initially was oncology on the whole. And just to be a part of a team that helps to care for patients and their families at such a critical juncture in their lives just is super rewarding. And it's a wonderful privilege to have. And I think I share that with the surgical oncologists and medical oncologists and all the staff here in that same way. And so I think you take that home each day and you can feel really proud of doing that in your career and working with a team that does that. And it's a, it's just really special. Um, radiation oncology specifically, um, I was drawn a little bit, as we'll touch on later, to the technology of the field. It's it's advancing. We have wonderful and exciting equipment that we use, and each case uh, is unique. Uh, and in being so allows a special challenge to each case, um, which I also find quite rewarding. Um, so it, I it truly enjoy, I'm happy I chose to the field of radiation oncology and hope to be able to do it for much longer. And Dr. Cotter, you, we read in your bio uh, that you have a PhD in molecular and cellular biology in addition to your medical degree. How, can you tell us a little bit about that transition um, or maybe that was happening simultaneously? Uh, it seems like a pretty unique uh, educational background. Yeah, um, it is generally unique. You know, I'm a, I'm a partnership with four, uh, four total radiation oncologists. Three of the four of us have MD PhDs. And I think it sort of leans towards the idea that we're interested in sort of the technology and the science behind these things and tends to draw us towards the field of radiation oncology. Um, I studied microbiology and during my time uh, at, at Harvard, I, I also did some research looking into viral tumors, how viruses help to cause cancer and how they might respond differently to other than other cancers in that way. Um, so there's just a nice interrelationship between basic science and oncology generally. Um, I'm, Dr. Gunther, I'm sure we'll talk some about that in terms of the types of amazing new, new drugs that are on the way based on these findings. Um, and so it transitions nicely into the field. At this point, I don't do any more basic science, um, but we are involved in research as we'll talk about a little bit later on. Makes a ton of sense. Thanks, Dr. Cotter. Uh, Dr. Gunther, I think that's a good uh, good segue into the latest developments in breast cancer treatment. Can you tell us a little bit about the the latest developments in breast cancer treatment, but specifically to medical oncology and what your experience has been maybe in the last five or so years? There's been a lot of developments in the last five years, but a lot of developments, as as is often the case, are developments where we are standing on shoulders of giants. And I think it's important to consider where were we before. Um, which was in the 1970s, we had chemotherapy. And that's what people think about when they think about medical oncology and breast cancer in general. And I think where we're heading now is moving further and further away from that, if we can. Uh, Over time, we've learned about breast cancer subtypes, about particular markers that help us predict uh, what someone might respond to um, and how well. Um, And so I I think I'll focus some of this answer on on treatments that that we give before and after breast surgery or um, uh, for cancers that are that are localized to the breast and maybe lymph nodes nearby, uh, meaning they're not metastatic um, and widespread. Um, there's special names for treatments that are done before or after a surgery that, that you might hear. 
uh, a treatment before a surgery is called neoadjuvant, neoadjuvant. And uh, a treatment done after a, a breast surgery is called an adjuvant treatment. And so uh, the people that might be reading about, uh, about cancer treatments and see these words come up, this is what they're referring to. Um, first, let's talk about the most common subtype of breast cancer, which is hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. Hormone receptors are, are proteins on the side of breast cancer cells that, that respond to uh, female hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and in response, it causes the, the cell to grow. And uh, treat, treatments for, for hormone receptor positive breast cancer uh, do include things like chemotherapy, uh, which is something that is directly toxic to dividing cells. It's, it's sort of a controlled dose of a poison. But the more important treatment for a hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer is something called endocrine therapy. Uh, endocrine therapy uh, is uh, a treatment that uses medicines that prevent hormones uh, like estrogen and progesterone from promoting the growth of breast cancer cells. It's also sometimes called hormone therapy different than what's used uh, in menopause, but also called hormone therapy. Uh, and these are pills that are generally taken about once a day for at least five years. One of the biggest developments over the last 10 to 15 years, I'd say, is the development and utilization of these 21 gene recurrence scores. The most commonly used one is called an Oncotype DX recurrence score. This is a, this is a test that uses a sample of tissue from a surgical specimen and it evaluates genes that are that are particular to an individual cancer. Uh, so it's going on. It's what's going on in one particular person, and it generates a score um, ranging from zero to one hundred, with zero generally meaning lo a lower risk of recurrence, and one hundred being a higher risk. Uh, two major trials looked at uh, looked at the Oncotype DX, TaylorX, and RX Ponder, and nearly 15,000 women enrolled on these trials to see and help decide uh, cutoff points for who might benefit from chemotherapy and who doesn't at all. And generally what was found that if you score 25 or less, that there's not an additional benefit from chemotherapy. And running these tests has helped us to, to, to avoid over-treatment for people that might not, might not benefit from something that can be hard and something, something that can be kind of toxic. These, these are incredibly helpful tests. They also help us to get a, a better understanding of what someone's individual recurrence risk is, what their prognosis is, and it's helped us to avoid a lot of side effects. For premenopausal women that have intermediate scores, um, there's, there's also been uh, a debate in the, the oncology community as to um, if there's benefit from chemotherapy. We, we found that people that have intermediate scores, they uh, they seem to do better with chemotherapy. And we have also noted that with, with chemotherapy, oftentimes the menstrual cycle will stop. And the open question now is, is chemotherapy actually beneficial here? Or is the benefit because chemotherapy stops the menstrual cycle? And so this has driven new research. There's a trial that's occurring right now, occurring meaning people are going on to the trial um, person by person that it's called Offset, it's run by a group called NRG, where they're trying to figure out, do people benefit from chemotherapy? Or if we were to give injections that suppress the menstrual cycle and gave endocrine therapy, like we've already talked about, is that just as good? 
We're hoping to know some data from that initially in about five years, and I think the trial will finish up in about 10 or so. Um, and I think that's going to be really exciting information. So we've talked some about de-escalating treatment, but what are some things that we can do to escalate treatment for people that might be higher risk with hormone receptor positive breast cancer? Well, one thing that we found for people that are um, able, able to take drugs called aromatase inhibitors, one of the endocrine therapies, is that aromatase inhibitors work better than drugs like tamoxifen. But unfortunately, women that uh, have not gone through menopause do not have benefit from aromatase inhibitors alone. The drug just won't work uh, based on what it does. We now know that uh, it's possible to give injections to suppress the menstrual cycle and give aromatase inhibitors, a drug that works better than tamoxifen to help, to help intensify treatment some. And we know this through some long-running clinical trials, including the SOFT trial and the TEXT trial. And in particular, this seems to especially benefit younger women that have been diagnosed with breast cancer, especially younger than age 35. Another newer strategy to intensify breast cancer treatment for, for women with hormone receptor positive breast cancer is the use of a type of drug called a CD, CDK4-6 inhibitor. This these are groups of drugs that were initially studied in the metastatic setting, um, in, in the setting to, to treat breast cancer that's no longer curable. But what we found is that in certain women uh, and in certain men, uh, they, they may be at higher risk for breast, breast cancer to come back. And there have now been two studies that have reported out data showing that we can use these therapies in the adjuvant setting after a surgery to intensify the treatment some and decrease the risk of breast cancer coming back. There's a drug called abemaciclib that was studied on, on a, a trial called Monarchy. And there's a, a drug that was recently reported on called ribociclib that was reported in a study called Natalie. Um, the data on this is still very immature. Uh, and, and we're gonna know more about, about exactly how much of an effect that we have, but the, the early results are very encouraging. Shifting a little bit from hormone receptor positive breast cancer and talking about a different subtype, I'd like to talk a little bit about HER2 positive breast cancer. HER2 is a, it's a protein, it's a normal protein found on the surface of breast cells. About one in five women and men have extra copies of HER2. And this tends to cause the breast cancer to be more aggressive, grow more quickly, and often means that chemotherapy is required to have the best outcomes for people. The most important thing for HER2 breast cancer has been the development of antibodies for HER2 specifically. There was a drug that was developed 20, 25 years ago called trastuzumab, and this caused a sea change in how people did with HER2 positive breast cancer. Uh, more recent a meta-analysis looked, uh, looked to see what the overall effect was by adding this antibody uh, to chemotherapy and found overall that there's been a one-third reduction in recurrence rates in breast cancer since we started using these drugs. More recently, we found other antibodies. There's one that's called pertuzumab that was studied on an trial called Affinity that's also been shown in addition to trastuzumab to, to uh, improve invasive disease-free survival, which means to improve time where breast cancer has not come back when added to this trastuzumab antibody and chemotherapy. We also know from, from several trials that uh, 
that it's also possible to give chemotherapy before um, before a surgery for HER2 positive breast cancer. And we know that men and women that have treatment that way do, do just as well. More recently, though, there's been an FDA meta-analysis that showed that we can find some information out about breast cancer and the prognosis of breast cancer at the time of the surgery for people that had treatment before. There's, there's something called pathologic complete response, meaning that after a treatment that's happened before surgery, after a neoadjuvant treatment, at the time of the surgery, breast cancer is no longer seen. And what's been shown is that if that's the case, the prognosis is significantly improved. And so a major focus for HER2 positive breast cancer, um, breast cancer trials has been, what can we do in the neoadjuvant setting to improve the rate of pathologic complete response? And the second thing we've worked on is, well, what if we can't get there? What can we do for the people that don't get there to improve their prognosis? One of the more recent trials to evaluate this is something called the Catherine trial. Catherine trial looked at something called an antibody drug conjugate. An antibody drug conjugate is where an antibody is linked to chemotherapy to specifically target one particular protein. This uh, Catherine trial looked at an antibody, the same antibody we talked about before called trastuzumab and linked chemotherapy to it so that this drug targeted HER2 positive breast cancer. And they studied a drug called trastuzumab and tansine or TDM1. What they found was that giving this drug after, uh, after a surgery for, for men and women that did not have a pathologic complete response reduced the risk of breast cancer uh, recurrence or death by 50%. Uh, so these new, this new drug class, these antibody drug conjugates are a really exciting development in the field of medical oncology. Uh, and there are more and more that are coming in the adjuvant setting uh, on clinical trial and more and more that are being developed and used in the metastatic setting. The other type of breast cancer that, that, uh, that's treated is called triple negative breast cancer. A triple negative breast cancer is a, a breast cancer that does not have, um, uh, that, that does not have the hormone receptors that we've talked about already and does not have this amplified HER2. And somewhere around one in 10 breast cancers are triple negative. Unfortunately, this type of breast cancer has a worse prognosis and it, it generally requires chemotherapy as well. And, and similar to HER2 positive breast cancer, treatment, uh, treatment for localized disease, not metastatic disease has also moved before surgery. And pathologic complete response also uh, is prognostic. It lets us know more about prognosis afterwards. And some more, more recent trials that have looked at what do we do uh, afterwards for residual, residual disease, people that don't have pathologic CR include a trial called CREATE-X, where a drug called capecitabine, an oral chemotherapy pill, was, was given to men and women that had residual disease after surgery. And it increased both overall survival and progression-free survival, meaning cancer took longer to come back if it came back at all and men and women that received this treatment lived longer. Uh, other newer treatments include the use of immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting before surgery and given afterwards. Immunotherapy is a, a very exciting development in medical oncology, and it's, it's being used in, in the treatment of several 
different types of cancer, not just breast cancer. Uh, it's also used in the metastatic setting too, but probably the most recent, the most important development in the neoadjuvant setting has been a trial called Keynote 522 that looked at the addition of a drug called pembrolizumab, also called Keytruda, uh, to, to chemotherapy and, and administration of this drug afterwards. Um, and what was found that giving this drug increases the rate of pathologic complete response, which we know uh, leads to better prognosis. One last thing I'd like to talk about uh, is the 10 to 15% of triple negative uh, breast cancer that has a mutation called BRCA1 or BRCA2. We tend to call it BRCA1 or BRCA2. These are, these are mutations that happen um, very, very early on. They're called germline mutations and they predispose to breast cancer and several other cancer types. We, we screened women for uh, women and men for these types of mutations uh, to see if it might be possible that they, they have a higher risk uh, of developing future cancers that are not just breast cancer, a higher risk of recurrence of breast cancer, uh, and also if they're at a higher risk of passing on this gene, uh, which would lead to a higher risk for their children to have, to have these cancers. In addition, there, there's a class of medications called PARP inhibitors that have been studied in breast cancer with BRCA1 and 2 mutations. And more recently, there was a trial called the Olympia trial that enrolled, uh, enrolled patients with breast cancer with BRCA1 and 2 mutations uh, and treated with a drug called Olaparib. Uh, and adjuvant treatment for one year with this drug led to a significant improvement in overall survival. So altogether, I have to say that there's been a lot of work done before and after surgery to help people live longer, live better, and be cured. Uh, and there's more work to do. There's more work ongoing now. And I think this is just a really exciting time uh, to be a medical oncologist and see what uh, what what uh, is found out now and what we can do to help people. Dr. Gunther, that's uh, incredibly comprehensive and super informative. You know, if we think about... Uh if we think about the impact from a patient or maybe family member's perspective, uh, a couple key words I think stuck out from, uh, from your summary in recent, let's say five-year advancements in breast cancer treatment. Um, those key words for me at least were treatment ahead of surgery, right? I don't think that's something that would be intuitive or common. Uh, another thing that you mentioned was de-escalating care. I don't, I don't know that we typically um, associate de-escalation of care with, uh, with, um, with cancer care, uh, and then, uh, immunotherapy, which has, has certainly been a hot, bot, uh, hot button, uh, topic as of late. Dr. Cotter, I, I, you know, want to uh, kick this question to you. Um, when you think of a term like de-escalating care, um, how has, how has the de-escalation of care, uh, made an impact in radiation oncology in your field? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, Dr. Guthrie, thanks so much for that. That was amazing. <laughs> um, so just maybe to step back a second and orient folks to what radiation oncology is. So the job of a radiation oncologist is to aim radiation at the places where we think there's a chance there might be microscopic disease left behind after surgery and after chemotherapy when, when needed or given. Um, and so we have to determine how big we think the risk is that there might be something left behind to deserve, determine if 
the radiation and the insurance it provides is appropriate given the possible side effects of radiation treatment. Um, so often we will give radiation therapy after a, a woman has a lumpectomy, although we'll come to certain situations where we might not. Uh, and then we'll often consider radiation even after mastectomy if the patient is shown to have their lymph nodes involved or other high-risk features. Um, I will say that in terms of the radiation we provide, um, there are certain situations, as Dr. Gunther described, where uh, we can subdivide patients into certain categories that are at lower risk. Uh, in the same way you're often able to avoid chemotherapy, there are situations where we may be able to avoid radiation therapy. Uh, similarly, in regards to de-escalation, there are some patients we think now that respond so well to these advancements in chemotherapy, especially when given before surgery so we can see how they respond, that we are starting to wonder whether the risk is low enough, even with a lumpectomy, that we might be able to avoid the need for radiation in those settings. Um, so de-escalating how often we give radiation is one component I'll talk about a little more in a bit. And then the second is when we do decide to give radiation, um, there have been significant improvements in our technology in radiation oncology that allow us to target that radiation in ways uh, that is uh, more specific uh, and allows us to avoid other structures that are close by or per even, even perhaps avoid treating parts of the breast we don't need to. Um, so we can de-escalate in how we give the radiation when we give it, and perhaps even de-escalate in giving it at all, given the rapid and market improvements in what Dr. Gunther has just described. So I think that would be the background I'd put it in. Um, to talk about how we might de-escalate a bit in regards uh, to side effects, um, there are two ways we do this. One is that for breast cancer, there is a technique called accelerated partial breast radiation that's been in significant practice over the last 10 years. And the idea there is there are certain patients uh, where the tumor is thought to be small enough and localized enough that the majority of the breast is not actually at risk. The lymph nodes aren't at risk. Other parts of the breast aren't at risk. The way I would describe it to patients is that a tumor is in Maine. It's really unlikely it's going to make all the way to Florida or California. And so you can really just treat that portion of the breast over often just one week with studies that have shown with up to 10 years of follow-up now. Um, essentially equivalent side effect profiles, or sorry, excuse me, with, with uh, more than five years, nearly 10 years of follow-up on these trials, um, equivalent outcomes in terms of low risk of recurrence with very low side effect profiles. So we often use accelerated partial breast in, in our practice here for patients who are considered appropriate for that technique. Um, another example is anytime we need to treat the entire breast or the lymph nodes on the left side, for many years, there was an increased risk of heart disease because the radiation in order to treat the breast would also touch the heart. Um, now we do CAT scans to prepare for radiation. We can see exactly where the heart is. We can shape and angle the radiation away. And probably uh, the biggest advancement in this regard most recently is something called deep inspiration breath hold technique that we use in practice at our institution since opening this new center about uh, five or six years ago. Um, this technique allows us to, in real time, watch a patient take a very deep breath and only have the radiation beam turn on when that breath has been taken in a way that creates additional space between the breast and the heart. When a patient standardly lies for radiation, the breast is here and the heart is here, 
But when they take a deep breath, the chest rises and the heart is pulled down by the diaphragm such that they separate in such a way that you can treat the breast and not touch the heart at all. Um, and so that is a technique that has allowed us to sort of de-escalate the side effect profile of radiation markedly. And we use that for all of our left breast cancer patients now. Uh, quick follow-up question on that, uh, Dr. Cocker. Is that a um, is that a, a technique thing or is that a technology thing? Um, I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, it's a, a deep inspiration breath hold treatment is a technique enabled by a technology. Um, so our technology at our center is called Vision RT. It is a system that's installed in both of our treatment rooms that allows us to see in real time the patient's anatomy on the table in space to millimeter measurements. And so we're able to have that technology in touch with our machine such that only when the patient's chest rises to the correct location, where we know where it is, it's how we planned it to be, only then can the radiation machine turn on. So in, in practice and treatment, a woman will take four or five 15 to 20 second breath holds to get through the treatment. If a patient coughs and loses their breath during the treatment, the machine automatically turns off instantaneously. We just resume back where we were. And so we have great confidence that when that radiation beam is on, that the heart is not in the path of it to decrease any risk to the heart long-term. So it is a technique um, that is only possible given the technological advancements over the last several years to allow us to do it confidently and safely. To piggyback a bit off Dr. Gunther in, in regards to uh, these different treatment types, um, I would want to touch on two areas of de-escalation in delivery of treatment that we're, that we're pursuing at Ridley Tree now. Um, these are two NRG trials that we have open our institution. Uh, one is called the DEBRA trial and one is called the HERO trial. And all these trials have names now to try to get people to remember them. We, we talk about Monarch and Natalie and now DEBRA and HERO. Um, the first trial, DEBRA, is de-escalation of breast radiotherapy uh, for women with ERPR positive disease with very low oncotype scores. Uh, Dr. Gunther talked on, uh, touched on the idea of an oncotype score to determine whether chemotherapy is needed, uh, but it also gives us information about how likely a breast cancer is to come back after lumpectomy if radiation is not provided. Um, so we have learned over the course of the last 10 to 15 years that women over the age of 70 with ERPR positive tumors of otherwise low risk based on multiple pathologic factors can often forgo radiation therapy if they go on one of the anti-hormone pills that Dr. Gunther described with no change in their long-term survival. So initially that was age 70 and older. There was a recent study called the PRIME2 trial for 65 and older. And the trial we have open is for anyone over the age of 50 to consider avoiding radiation altogether if they have a low oncotype score, negative lymph nodes, and other low-risk pathologic features. So that trial is open institution uh, to try to avoid radiation therapy with the idea that this might be the type of patient who is at such low risk that the insurance of radiation may not be needed. Um, the second trial is for HER2 positive patients, as Dr. Gunther described, the C change as something the drug Herceptin came online and the multiple, adi multiple additional HER2-related uh, therapies. Um, in this case, primarily for patients who undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy and have that pathologic complete response that Dr. Gunther described and pursue a lumpectomy, the question is, if everything melted away with that surgery, how critical is it to give radiation to that breast if we were really hopeful that everything is in fact gone? 
So the standard of care remains to give radiation therapy after a lumpectomy for HER2 positive disease. But this trial asked the question of whether or not we might be able to avoid radiation completely for these patients. Um, so the trial, the HERO trial, half the women get radiation as standard, the other half do not get radiation at all. There is a second arm to that trial for women that have chemotherapy after surgery, as long as the tumor is quite small and they receive all of their HER2-directed chemotherapy, they can also attempt to avoid radiation on this trial. So these are two examples of subtypes of breast cancer patients where we are actively looking to de-escalate the radiation as the systemic therapy that Dr. Gunther provides has improved because this is overall the team approach, surgical oncologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists. Our goal is to provide the least side effects with the highest rates of cure. And as other things keep improving, sometimes we may be able to do a little less on our end. Dr. Cotter, that's super helpful. You know, I've seen the two of you uh, both together within our cancer center. Um, you talk about, uh, about the team approach to cancer care um, with really three parts represented. Can, can one of you... Um, Talk about the impact of a tumor board uh, to an individual patient's cancer care. Maybe uh, Dr. Gunther, if you could start. A tumor board here at, at uh, Ridley Tree is held once a week. And what a tumor board is, is a, is a place to present individuals, individual cases, individual circumstances for people that, that are working together on the team to come to the same table and discuss care and coordinate in 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 first person and 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 coordinate uh, live. Um, to be honest, we we look at pictures, we look at mammograms, we look at ultrasounds, we look at MRIs. We we see right where the cancer will right where the cancer is, and and we see where the biopsy is. Where will the surgery take place? What will be targeted with radiation? And we we share ideas of how would we manage this. It's not just one medical oncologist and and one radiation oncologist that's there. Um, there there are several, and and you hear you hear the pin, the opinion of the medical community. Uh, sometimes that opinion is the same amongst different providers, but sometimes it's a little different because there can be a little bit of art to medicine too. We we have the help of some phenomenal doctors as well, some excellent breast radiologists who are also part of this team. Um, some excellent pathologists that review uh, review everything that they see under the microscope with us. Um, so I don't want to say that oncology is just those three fields because it's really a wide field. And there are so many people that are coming and helping people. You know, Dr. Cotter, great, uh, great point on uh, this really being a, a team effort. Um, you led for a while our breast cancer um, uh, tumor boards. Can you talk a, a, about um, maybe what that experience is like, but even more so, what's the desired outcome from a successful tumor board from the perspective of an individual patient who's been discussed in that setting? Sure. Um, yeah, I did. I ran the breast uh, cancer tumor board for, I think, a little over five years. I've since passed the torch, but still attend every week, just not master of, of ceremonies, I suppose, anymore. Sure. Um, I. The tumor boards are very helpful. So cases um, are brought forward by one of the doctors on the team uh, to be presented in front of surgeon, medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, genetic counseling, nutrition. All these folks can be on this call. 
um, to sort of talk through the nuances of any specific case and often essentially to sort of set the table, so to speak, in terms of what the best approach is going to be uh, in terms of what needs to come first. Perhaps this is a case where chemotherapy may be the best first option. How would that impl implicate or change radiation therapy plans? How might that change surgical options? And sort of talking through the different paths of approach for each case in a way that allows us to optimize it as a team in real time. And I, I think that's extremely helpful for a patient to get all the thoughts of the different people who are going to be interacting in that patient's care on the same page early on uh, to allow us to make the best choice and choose the best path to walk along with that patient, I suppose. Dr. Gunther, can you, can you uh, talk a little bit about in this tumor board environment, how often do you come in uh, maybe with one um, plan uh, and leave with a slightly adjusted plan based on that collaborative discussion over a single patient case? I, I think that happens fairly frequently, to be honest. I, I think that hearing the perspective of how how one thing can be managed on the back end, like what will radiation be able to do um, or, or uh, what will be a plan of, of surgery uh, or or lymph node dissection or otherwise, I, I think is helpful and and it helps me to tweak what I might offer. Um, I, I will add that I also find it very educational um, as a radiation oncologist. It gives gives me exposure to what the surgeons are thinking, to what the medical oncologists are thinking. It's wonderful to hear the discussion amongst the multiple medical oncologists about the options that are there. You can see how quickly that field is evolving. And it allows the rest of us to sort of keep up the speed to some degree with what's happening in these other subspecialties of care. That's helpful. You know, we uh, we often hear about comprehensive breast cancer care. Um, and I think one of the themes that I'm taking away from the conversation today is, um, you know, we've talked about uh, genetic counseling and their impact uh, uh, in helping us understand gene mutations and, and how that's going to change maybe our plan for a specific patient. Um, we've talked certainly about our three primary physician groups, but we've also talked about pathology, uh, radiology, um, there's even nurse navigators, uh, social work, and all the social determinants of healthcare uh, that come into this setting. Dr. Gunther, can you talk about uh, what it's been like to practice in this truly comprehensive environment where under one roof we have every specialty and every supporting level of expertise represented um, and accessible, right? You know, second floor, third floor, they're all still in the same building. What's that been like for you here? Uh, one word, seamless, uh, I would say. Um, if Dr. Cotter is seeing someone that he knows I'm seeing later in the week or the following week, in one building, he can climb the stairs, uh, come into my office and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking immediately. Um, or, or if, for instance, uh, we want to we want to see somebody as a clinical trial option. Those people are right upstairs. Um, genetic counseling is right here, too. Uh, and every, everybody's just a call away. Uh, and an in-person meeting can happen impromptu whenever. And I, I think I think that's something that's really special and really helps women. Thanks, Dr. Gunther. Dr. Cotter, is there anything else that you would want our community to know about you or your approach to cancer care? Um, I'll just I'll follow up with Dr. Gunther just for a second on just being in the same building. I, I find this super helpful. It is not unusual for me to get a cup of coffee, walk up the stairs, knock on the door, talk about a patient I'll be seeing that day, making sure we're on the same page, making sure there's, if I want to communicate something specific about a thought I had about a patient I saw earlier in the day, 
It's also not uncommon to have a patient that's recently had chemotherapy and that patient might have a question for medical oncology. They happen to be seeing me and we can make a seamless interaction with them and medical oncology team to sort of address any of those concerns because they're here and we're seeing them as well. And we're all part of the same big team. So I, I find it super helpful to all be here together uh, in this regard, surgery, medical oncology, and radiation. Um, I think it's a real benefit to the patients. Very fair. And uh, I, you know, what's uh, what is the team maybe that represents the unsung hero in that experience? You know, not the not the uh, frontline physician roles, but is there a team that stands out to you um, that's impactful? And and this doesn't need to be uh, you know a ranking, but one team recently that's maybe been impactful to you that our audience maybe doesn't know exists in this cancer center setting. Um, I think in terms of this seamless care, um, the medical assistants and nursing team end up doing a lot of the communication. And there, I think I feel like there's a hotline between the floors for these folks, and they'll they'll be able to get people in quite quickly and address these issues very quickly in a way that doesn't inconvenience the patient, allows to get answers, and help the patient make sure that we take care of them as is appropriate uh, at all times. And and how about the response, uh, Shane, to the um to the, uh, the, like kind of the additional ancillary service, the supportive care, integrative care uh, component. Is there a team that represents, uh, you know, that's somewhat of this unsung hero, somebody that, that's, that's been highly impactful to patient care, uh, but doesn't maybe make the, uh, the front headlines of a clinical research study? Um, I think an, another one of the teams at the center that is super helpful in terms of regarding holistic and seamless care I would say is our nutrition team. I think it's hard not to talk about that in terms of what, what impact we have. Um, now we're talking mostly about breast cancer today. Um, there are, in terms of chemotherapy agents, Dr. Gunther can probably talk about this a bit more, uh, that uh, they allow that, that treatment to go more easily with less side effects. Um, there's long-term implications around diet and dietary changes to decrease the risk of recurrence of breast cancer. That our team is in to follow to follow these, uh, there, uh, that the nutrition team is involved in to help um, uh, to help long term, even after the patients are done with uh, their radiation treatments and beyond. Doctor Gunther, any unsung hero in your mind? Any uh, any group that that stands out for you that's come in um, uh, to make a, a big time impact on either the quality of care um, or the comprehensive nature of the care that you offer. Two, two groups I'd say that are, are often unsung, um, but our patients love them. The first is the navigators that we work with. Um, navigators are assigned to individual patients and they, they follow along to make sure that things are being scheduled. Patients know where they need to be uh, somewhere, when they need to be somewhere. They give reminder calls. Uh, they're, they're a fast phone number to call if you need to get a hold of, that, hold of us faster. Um, they, they help us uh, get orders in quicker and and help us uh, uh, fill in fill in uh, all the boxes that need to be done to to deliver treatment uh, uh, in the best way and in the in the the most efficient way. Uh, the second group I'd like to talk about are social workers, um, and I've had very positive interactions with them because, as Doctor Doctor Cotter talked about, and I think you've talked about this too, man. Uh, there are things that are upstream of of just cancer treatment that that can make it really hard to to do well um what what happens when you have to take off work uh and and you can't go to work what, what do you do how do you file for disability um how do you fill out that paperwork who do you turn it into um what happens if you're diagnosed with breast cancer and you're in school 
uh, and you're you're a very young woman. Um, how how do you how do you withdraw from school? How do you go back? Um, and I, what, what what happens if if there's a copay that you need some help with and you need to fill out paperwork, uh, and you don't know what these things are? And and I think in in particular in the in these areas, these upstream areas of what we're uh, before we see people, uh, social work is really helpful, uh, and I'm really appreciative of them as well. Maybe a final question here. Is there anything else that you would like our community to know either about your you or your approach to breast cancer care? Um, and maybe uh, let's go with Dr. Gunther first. I think my approach is, is to be open and to be honest, to, to share what we're finding, uh, to say what I think. And in my interactions with people, people are appreciative of, of someone that lets you know what they're actually thinking. Um, so I, I think that that's what you'll find when you come in and you come talk to me and, and, and other medical oncologists here. Thanks. And Dr. Cotter, anything uh, that you want our community to know about you or your approach to breast cancer care? Um, I, I think just pretty simply that I'm, I'm proud to do this for a living. I'm proud to be able to help care for women and their families with, with breast cancer. And I'm proud to be part of this team that allows us to do it in the way we do. I think it's simple as that. Yeah, it's a pretty special place to be. Um, it's special when you, when we're in this uh, in this community and we hear about successful treatment stories um, of patients that have seen actually um, in my neighborhood, my neighbor uh, patient of Dr. Gunther uh, and my table mate at a recent uh, dinner uh, patient of Dr. Cotter. And it's just uh, pretty spectacular to see successful breast cancer care stories. You know, in wrapping this up, I hope that this has been a reminder uh, for everybody uh, listening, that there's always hope in our breast cancer care journey. Um, early diagnosis and medical expertise like you've listened to today are key uh, to that successful journey. We here at Ridley Tree Cancer Center and at Sansom Clinic, we're here to partner with you. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time to join this uh, episode of Sansom Speaks. We hope you found this to be valuable information. For all of our other talks, uh, please feel free to visit uh, sansomspeaks.sansomclinic.org. And again, thank you for joining us.